All right, I said all right again. It's a habit of mine. <laughs> Welcome to the Springs. If you're visiting, my name is Peter. Uh, I serve as the lead pastor of the Springs, and today we complete It's Not That Complicated. I'm excited about it. It's Not That Complicated. It's our three-week series on love and relationships. Now, your life is meant to be a beautiful tapestry of relationships. Your relationship with God and with your spouse and with other people that are different than you, a diversity of other relationships are meant to be a beautiful tapestry. But in my vast experience with tapestries, uh, I know (laughs) that uh, some of them are just ugly when you try to design them on your own. Case in point, this vest that my wife wouldn't let me wear. I mean... If only we could get an executive order banning kitty cat tapestry vests. Come on with that. Real simple lesson in this. Don't let your life be an ugly tapestry. Allow God to design the tapestry of your relationships by going deep with him who's different than you and me. And with others that he places in your life. Now, before we get into the heart of our sermon, I've promised uh, we have a, a couple, a married couple at the start of each sermon that's going to come up. And I want to bring up the Jacksons. Man, Chris and Kayla Jackson, I, I can't wait for them to have another baby. Or, twins? Check this out. Twins, and y'all are the Jackson Five. Boom. Anyone old enough to know Jackson Five? Anyway, yeah, oh, you are. They're going to share their story about why has your relationship not been that complicated? That's a pretty loaded question, but thank you all for being here today. So, married people, anybody married out here? Yeah! Oh, everyone's really excited to be married. All right, so I'm really quick. I'm going to talk to the men in the room. So, men of faith, anybody in here? Yes. Men of faith, are you guys? Yeah. All right, all right, all right. So, first of all, men of faith are in, have to be intentional, okay? So, men of faith have to make decisions. And I did not know this before I knew Jesus or I knew Kayla. So, before I knew Jesus, I would have a hard time making decisions like Wendy's or McDonald's. Like, what do... <laughs> Like, what do I do? Or the tougher life decisions of what school am I going to go to? I have so much anxiety on what I needed to do. What was my purpose? Again, what uh, Glenn was saying, what do I need to do? So, with that being said, I met Jesus, and I started reading his words, and he was very intentional. He said, are you going to pick up your cross, or are you not going to? So, it was either or, a very intentional God. And he was so intentional with me that he kind of changed my nature and made me more intentional. So I came to Peter with, with intention, but I had this list of things that I felt like needed to be done before I got married. So I came knowing that Kayla and I have been best friends for a while, said I, I really like her. And I had this like 10 list of things I said, okay, I need to graduate college, get a good job, uh, make at least six figures, two cars, a house, <laughs> Then I can get married. Then two years later, we can have babies. And then after that, no offense to anybody's life that turned out this way, but this is, this is what I thought my life should be. And Peter broke it down for me. He said, well, do you love God with everything you have? And I said, well, of course. I try to. I've given my life to God. He said, okay, do what you want. And I was like, 
okay, I didn't understand at first. But really, all in all, he, he noticed a change that was in my heart. Therefore, my intentions were not my own intentions anymore. I didn't have this idea of what I should be doing. Jesus said, hey, be intentional. Do you like her or not? Yes, I do. And uh, the thing about it was I didn't have the, I had the perfect ideal image of a woman in my mind before I married Kayla. And one that would never argue, one that would never... Never come, never, never come to me and say, hey, you're wrong. Um, and it's not going to lie, this is the best thing that I've, I've never done. I never said, I'm so, I'm so glad I said yes to Kayla because she has helped me grow so much. And that's how I knew I was supposed to marry her. Not the fact that she was the perfect ideal woman, that she liked the same things that I liked, but that she was so different from me that we can grow together. And because we grew together as best friends intentionally, I, I said, why, why not do this forever? Might as well. So now we have a little guy back there. And we've been married for about two years now. So guys, be intentional with whatever that you do. And whatever the decision that you come up in your life, whatever circumstance it is, say yes to that decision. You may make a mistake and it may be the wrong decision, but God has you. Because if you make it in faith, it doesn't matter if you make the wrong decision or the circumstance doesn't turn out the way you want it to. He's going to provide. He's going to pull through. So, awesome. Well, then. So, that was great in the midst of, you know, when our, when our dating relationship was supposed to start to me was as soon as he told me he liked me. So, he's over here trying to be intentional, right? I didn't know any of this at the time. And as soon as he told me, Kayla, I like you, I immediately got this anxiety like, okay, now we have to date, and then we have to get married and start having babies. But God had to slow me down a lot because his idea of being intentional was being intentional with our friendship first. And I couldn't understand that at the time because I wanted a relationship so badly, and I wanted to be a wife so badly that all of that was shadowing God writing our story for us instead of me doing it myself. And it was actually really cool how it happened was he told me that he liked me. And then six months, I had to wait guys, six months before we actually started dating. But when we dated, so many things were dealt with during our friendship because he was being intentional with that. And if I could say anything to my single self before all of that happened, it would be to really trust God that he is not only, he's not only good after marriage, but he's good even before that. Um, Chris was actually the guy who invited me out to church for the first time. And I had no idea that he would be my husband. If you told me when I was 16 that I was going to marry a white dude, I would have looked at you like you were crazy. And, and God has just done above and beyond what I ever could have put together because he showed me that I had to take my hands off of it, ladies. Did anyone relate to that? To take your hands off of relationships? I mean, it's, it's definitely difficult, but when, we, when you're rooted in Jesus, you can totally trust him to, to be way better <laughs> than what we can be all the time. Um, and then finally, I mean, of course, we've, we've had to work through things and um, we have a, a lot of differences, you know, like, you know, he's a man, I'm a woman. Uh, no, but, but there are definitely cultural differences and all kinds of stuff that comes up when you're married. But like I said, all of that, you can trust it in the hands of Jesus because he always has it. Yeah.
girl thought she wouldn't be anointed without the music. Come on with that. I was hearing music. Praise the Lord. Y'all, that's going to be probably one of the best interracial marriage stories you will hear the rest of your day. Because I want to go to another story of a Moabitess, someone from Moab, and a Jew named Boaz. I want to go to the book of Ruth. And you can follow along with me if you have your Bible. I'm going to skip around and go pretty fast though, so stick with me. Ruth chapter 1 verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab. Sojourn is pilgrimage to seek food or refuge. He and his wife and his two sons, the name of the man was Elimelech and the name of his wife, Naomi. Now, because of this famine, they go to Moab just to survive, just to see if there's any food, any jobs. And surviving didn't go very well for Elimelech. It says right away he died. And so Naomi is left with the decision, do I take my sons and go back to Bethlehem or what do I do? And that decision was kind of already made for her because her two sons were already on uh, you know, Moab Mingle and found themselves some wives. And they married two women, Orpah and Ruth. And they ended up dying pretty soon too. So Naomi is left in this foreign land with her two daughters-in-law from a whole different culture. And she's left without refuge because in the ancient Near East, men were the only way that women could survive. And so she says, look, I, I'm probably going to go home, but y'all can go back to your families. You don't have to stay with me. And Ruth and, and Orpah were like, look, we're going to stay with you. We got you. And she kind of reminded them, though, like, hey, I got no help for you in this whole husband thing. That game you're going to have to work on your own. So Orpah peaced out, kissed her, and left. And then verse 16, Ruth said, check this out. She said to Naomi, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, your God, my God. Where you die, I'll die. Where you're buried, that's where I'm going to be buried. And may the Lord do all that and more to me if, I, if anything but death departs me from you. And I love when the Bible has these really obvious narrative moments because in verse 18 of chapter one, it says, when Naomi saw that she was determined, Ruth was determined to follow her, she said no more. Yeah, you think? And they both go back to Bethlehem just to survive. And it says that the whole city was stirred to see Naomi back with her daughter-in-law and to hear the depressing story And as we find out, it wasn't a depressing time as when they had left because it says God had visited his people and sent rain. And they were in the midst of one of the best harvests they'd have had in years, a barley harvest where people were actually being fed. And it says that Ruth went to the edge of a group of different fields to see if she could just glean anything. She was waiting, some theologians think, just to gain permission to glean any, any food that would be left by the reapers. See, she didn't know of the Jewish law that said that any refugee or foreigner or poor person could go to the edge of any field of a Jew and glean on their own. She didn't know this. She just sat there vulnerably. And as she sat there, one of the men 
that owned the land noticed her, a man named Boaz. Boaz goes to her, verse 8 of chapter 2. Boaz said to Ruth, now listen, my daughter. Now he wasn't saying my daughter like he thought he was her dad, but he was saying this word to express a tenderness and, and an affection, saying basically you are one of us. He says, my daughter, do not glean in another field. Do not leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what my young men have drawn. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground and said to him, why have I found favor in your eyes? That you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner. You see that? same false self-image foreigner came up in her mind again. And Boaz drives it home further just to remind her that she belongs. He says, verse 11, Boaz answered her, all that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me. And how you left your father and your mother and your native land have come to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done and a full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Now, as you read on, you'll see that Ruth was able to gather enough to feed her and her mother-in-law, and she was able to gather enough confidence in the Lord to go and propose to Boaz, spoiler alert, too late. She proposed to the dude, they get married, and they have a baby, their first son, Obed. Obed was was the grandfather of the great king David, both predecessors of the greater king, Jesus. This is an amazing story. Now, With our time remaining, I want to spend 15 or 20 minutes driving home one big idea. So if you leave with nothing else, if if this is the only thing you get, know this, that God's unfailing love is our only true refuge. God's unfailing love is our only true refuge refuge. Now in recent weeks, I've been talking about how relationships, marriages, they're not just bilateral agreements between a husband and a wife. A marriage has a lot more to do with God than we think in any other relationship for that matter. It's about how God has transcendently enabled us for relationship with him and for one another. And in God and for God and through God, we can have this beautiful thing called relationship without which life is a waste. And so when I do weddings, I'll often say things uh, like this, like, you know, the only two things essentially that can destroy a marriage is number one, a husband, and number two, a wife. But if both are seeking refuge in the hope of God, then there's hope in a marriage. The same hope that Boaz talked about when he affirmed this admirational, beautiful language, under whose wings, Ruth, you have taken refuge. That's the hope. Jimmy Evans says it this way. He's a pastor in Amarillo. He says, marriage isn't designed 
to be between a man and a woman. Marriage is designed to be between a man, a woman, and their God. You see, only when the husband and the wife are seeking refuge in their God will there be a marriage that's full of the life it was designed for. And why is that? Because my love for my wife doesn't just hypothetically fail, it often fails. But God's love never fails her, and it never fails me. So wives, I need you to know that your husband alone is not a safe refuge. Husbands, your wife is not a safe refuge. Please don't disagree with me and then go from here and learn the hard way. Your spouse is only safe when you are both seeking a safer refuge together. God's unfailing love is our only true refuge. Now, to drive this point home even further, I want to show you a few things from this story that would have been alternatives other than God's unfailing love for Ruth and Boaz to lean on. But please follow with me closely because these alternatives are the same things that deceptively we tend to lean on. So I want to put God's love in the ring or the cage with these three things. God's unfailing love is stronger than number one, prosperity or peace. Now, if you've been to a wedding, which I'm sure most of us have, you might have heard things like this in the vows. Uh, So help me here. For richer or for? In sickness and in? You see, it's easy to be devoted to one another in, in the really positive and pleasant part of those couplets, right? But the vows don't go in richness and in health. It talks about the, the stormy side of those couplets a lot more. And that's actually the, the hard parts are the only true test of what's in a relationship. It's not that complicated. It's just difficult. And it's impossible without God. That's how you know what's really there. In your relationships, and especially in marriage, perhaps you can have love between two people in times of peace and prosperity, but much like a tree's roots are only really developed in the midst of a storm, it's the same way with a relationship. I mean, who cares about a refuge when it's not stormy outside, right? We don't even think about those things until it's like, oh man, it's raining. We check the roof. Same with a relationship. And what's so beautiful about Ruth and Boaz is their story happened in the opposite of peace and prosperity. And that is precisely why it's such a beautiful story. Now, in our day and age, there is a lot of talk about peace and prosperity and those who don't have it and executive orders and refugees and travel bans. And listen, I will say nothing to disrespect our nation's government because they will do the best they can do to do what they feel is keeping our country safe. But I will, in my position from this pulpit, speak to you the congregation. And I will remind you that Elimelech's family were refugees in Moab. They were refugees in the same place that there is disorder today. 
Naomi's men all die and she finds refuge in Ruth. And then Ruth in turn finds safe refuge in the God of Israel. And then Naomi and Ruth return to God's place, the promised land, Bethlehem, where our Jesus was born, and they are refugees there. So the question of uh, should we uh, be accepting refugees is one thing. The real question is, is when are we going to see that we are refugees? That this, this land is not our own. That if we know Jesus, this is not where we belong. And if we would see that we are refugees, then maybe we wouldn't take so much refuge in America, which will fail when God's love, his unfailing love, abides forever and ever and ever. So in a time of peace and prosperity, let us be warned and let us be strengthened that true love is better than this. In a time of great suffering, Ruth and Boaz had their amazing story. They were both separately and distinctly finding refuge in the God of Israel and his unfailing love, and then they just so happened to bump into each other. Single people don't miss this progression right here. (laughs) Very important progression. Are you single and want to be married? And not just to be married, to to marry the right one, have a godly marriage. This is the best piece of advice you'll ever get about finding your mate. So you ready? Stop looking. Stop looking. Pursue your refuge in the unfailing love of our God. And then just see who he plans on you bumping into that's also doing the same thing. And I'm willing to wager that you'll really only find that person in a storm when it's difficult to trust God. Why is that? Because God's unfailing love is so much better and stronger than peace or prosperity. And it's also stronger than number two, personal commonalities. Personal commonalities. Why is it that today's collective wisdom kind of says that compatibility in relationships is all about the sum result of all of our common interests? That's a foolish idea. What if there's an element that can draw two people together that's stronger than whether or not both of them like Asian food or like to watch rom-coms? And what if that element that draws people together holds them stronger together when they have nothing else in common? Maybe different cultures that they come from. You see, Ruth and Boaz had almost nothing in common. Check this out. She was a widow and he was a bachelor. She was unemployed and he was an industrious farmer. She was younger-ish, and he was older-ish. She was a Moabite, and he was a Jew. They came from entirely different cultures and languages and races, and collective wisdom would say, uh, they're not a match. But see, when Boaz observed her, and he watched how she conducted herself, and, herself, and he, he just looked at her character, he He tapped into a greater wisdom than collective wisdom. He was listening to how she spoke, and undoubtedly she probably had a foreign accent to him. I mean, just imagine, you know, someone speaking ancient Near Eastern Hebrew dialect and with a Moabite accent, you know? Well, either do I. But (laughs) to him, 
It was this foreign accent probably, and yet there was something strangely and bizarrely familiar about her that he was trying to put his finger on. What is it about her? And he could sense that although this person is technically alien, for some reason he felt right at home around her. And it was beautifully bizarre to him, I'm sure. By the way, this whole relationship between two people of different races, you need to know, let's be careful when we read the Bible, especially the Old Testament. It does not forbid interracial marriage. It's interfaith marriage that the Bible has a problem with, especially when it forbids Israelites from marrying into Canaanite tribes. It's, it's the same issue today, that God wants his people to find refuge in him and not any of the other gods of the land, whether it's a, uh, the Baal gods or Molech or the gods of the lands today, like leisure or football or education or Republicans or Democrats or NASDAQ or Dow Jones. Will we find our refuge when it really matters and when it really counts? And can we prove it with our life? our words, our trust, our bank accounts, can we prove it in hard times that our refuge is in God? And God is wanting for that to be clear that he and his love is the only true refuge and he wants our marriages and how we raise our kids to display that uniquely, especially especially when we have other things that are not in common. It's that one essential commonality, shared refuge, that we can share. In fact, that's why interracial marriage can be so uniquely beautiful in terms of the gospel. Whether it's with uh, Ruth and Boaz or Moses and Zipporah before them or Chris and Kayla today or any other interracial uh, relationships you have in the church or just relationships with people who are so different than you and challenge the things that you presume. Here's what can be uniquely beautiful if Christ is at the center of these relationships. That you get to know something different about God's creation and you have a chance to get to know God better who is different than you. And and for me, one of the most beautiful things is what these types of relationships show the rest of the world. Earl, can you come up here? This is Earl Sidney Smith. He's 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 my brother from another mother and from another city now because we sent he and his beautiful wife, Sarah, out to Houston. But this guy and I, we have, I mean, he doesn't even like the spurs. Man, it's hard to find common ground with this brother. But here's what's beautiful. When he and I have nothing in common but Jesus, and yet we're closer in relationship than we are to the people with whom we have everything else in common with, that says something beautiful and profound about our Jesus. That's what's beautiful about interracial relationships. It's different than everything else. Thank you, Earl. Borrowed your handsome face. Good job. What does it say? It says, uniquely demonstrates that God's unfailing love is our only true refuge. And it's stronger than personal commonalities, just like it's stronger than prosperity or peace. And finally, it's stronger than physical beauty. One of the things that ministered to me most about the book of Ruth is what it doesn't mention. I mean, how hot was Ruth? We'll never know. We'll never know. 
because it matters less. Now, I'm sure that Boaz was attracted to her inner beauty and their shared refuge, and then I'm undoubtedly he was physically attracted. But I'm so refreshed by it saying nothing of that in the Bible. Sometimes it's the things that the Bible leaves mysterious that most minister to me. Especially today in a culture where we're so stupid obsessed with unnatural beauty and uh, physical seduction. And, and, you know, it's confusing for men and women in our culture. But God's unfailing love is not complicated like that. It's a deeper, stronger, more powerful and profound refuge than mere physical attraction alone. And the scary thing about why I'm, I take this so personally and so deep is because this is a battle I still fight. This is, my guard's still up to fight this thing that God helps me to fight, these lies that used to control me before I knew Jesus. Not, not to mention the fact that I have three beautiful daughters and I'm trying to sort all that out, the world that they're growing up in. But let me just remind you a little bit about my story because it has to do with this. You know, I went to church. I said I believed in Jesus, but my disbelief in him was evident by the fruit of my life. And one of the big reasons why you could tell that I wasn't truly saved, I didn't really know God, is because I was controlled by a spirit of pride and lust. I tried to use girls to define me and to get what I wanted instead of really seeking the God of love. I didn't know that there was such a God to be sought until he sought me. When I was running after lust, he was running after me, and he sent uh, peers in my high school, people who I used to sin with, to run after me and to preach the gospel and to make me new. And soon after that, I, I had new eyes to, to see life and to see young women. And I had my, you know, my Boaz glasses on. And I noticed one of my peers that helped lead me to Christ. And I noticed in her, there's something different about her. There's a refuge she's seeking that we share and she has this commitment to God's love to the degree that she doesn't need mine. She doesn't need any attention from me. And the more she rejected me, the more it could firm up my confidence in that deep refuge of God's love. But also the more it intrigued me about her. It made me inspired to wait a little longer. But, you know, nine years after that moment of noticing her, we got married. And that was 11 years ago this May. And my point about all this is this, that my wife is pretty. Sorry to embarrass you. Sorry, not sorry. <laughs> my wife is pretty, but there's always been something so much better about her that happens to be the same thing that holds us together. And that's this, that God's unfailing love is our only true refuge. Now, in Matthew 23, uh, it describes when Jesus is coming back into the city of Jerusalem. And this is at the end of his ministry. The end of his ministry, he's, he's 
he's pretty much completing what he has come to do on the earth. And he, before he's, he enters into Jerusalem, he just looks and he just weeps over the city. He, he sees the hardness of people's hearts, the conservative self-sufficiency that people live with, all while rejecting God and relationship with him. And he's broken over the city. And he cries out, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were unwilling. I wonder how often God cries similar things over us. So when Jesus says, I long to gather you, he's invoking the same word picture that Boaz spoke of when he was speaking of Ruth uh, abiding under the refuge of God's wings. He's invoking a picture like a mother hen in a barn as the barn is burning down and she is covering her chicks so that they have refuge in her as the barn burns down and kills her and preserves the chicks. In fact, that's exactly what Jesus was going into the city to do. Even, even before these people who he weeped over saying, you were unwilling, even before we were willing necessarily, and before we chose to follow God, he was willing to make an eternal abiding place, an eternal refuge for us. Those of us burning under the fire of our own sin, all of us. And as a hen spreads her wings over her chicks, Jesus spread his arms out on a cross that Friday afternoon and he hung and he bled and he died. And that's our hope. He died for us and he rose again from the dead that same weekend on a Sunday morning. And the life that he offers us into our relationship with him and with others is our only true refuge. Would you pray with me? God, help us to respond. Help us to respond rightly. Open us to respond appropriately. Give us bravery to consider the cost even now. Amen. And before we dismiss, I have, I have a personal moment that I want you to think and challenge yourself. Jesus said, how often I've longed for this moment, but you were unwilling. And so my question to you, if I can be so personal, is are you willing right now? Are you willing to find refuge in him or just keep turning to other coping mechanisms or people when your love fails, when it's not enough? Are you willing right now? You know, some of us in here need to really do this for the first time to find our refuge in God. Maybe you're like me where you're familiar with church, uh, but your life demonstrates and the Holy Spirit reminds you that you've never fully found your refuge in God. And what, what happens now? What do we do? Well, here's what's so scandalously simple and uncomplicated about it. Even as I'm talking to you and you're watching me, you can pray in your heart and believe that Jesus paid the price for you on the cross as your substitute and you confess him as your Lord and pray that prayer. Now it's simple. It doesn't mean it was easy. It cost him greatly so that he can be in relationship with you. If that's you, you can pray right now. We don't have to have you come up front or raise your hand. You can pray right now. God make me new and he can make you new just like that. But I believe that there's many of us, not just people who need to give in for the first time, but many of us need to 
find our refuge in God. And so whether you're married or single or you're young or old or you're a new believer or you're becoming born again as we speak or you've been a believer for years and years, the question is, is are you willing to find your refuge in God? And my, my question is, if this message specifically spoke to you and you need to respond to God, I need you to raise your hand so I can pray with you. Anyone? This message specifically spoke to you and you need to respond and say, God, that's me. Pray for me. This was for me. Thank you. Anyone else? Thank you. Can, you, can we all stand to our feet as we dismiss? Lord, I thank you for the hands raised, the affirmation of faith that, God, here I am. God, you know where we are, but us saying here I am is a thing. It it gives us that affirmation. I pray, Lord, for healing and power that you would restore for every person in this room, that you would restore the, the foundations of our true refuge in you. So much so that when storms come, that the world would look and see that we would have a strong refuge in you and uniquely glorify you. Amen. Now, a few things as we dismiss. If you need to stick around and you need more prayer, we're here for you. Don't be in a hurry to leave. Uh, If you're visiting, we want to be in better communication with you. We want to make this church your church. And the, the step for you is to turn our connections card, which is behind your seats, fill it out and turn it into our table. Now, I have a special announcement about next week for all of us. I... I'm excited about our series, a six-week series that's, series that's starting next week on the book of Colossians, which is my favorite epistle in the New Testament. Uh, it's a great opportunity to invite friends to church, but listen, just as importantly, a great opportunity to try to come to church service every Sunday and to read Colossians on your own and to study and go deeper in your confidence in Jesus as your refuge.